on CGRU in Toronto, you're listening to Built to Play. I'm Armin Bali, And I'm Daniel Rosen. This has been a year. It's hard to believe that a full 12 months have already passed. But so much has happened. Good and very bad. We made friends. We fell in love. We stole the hearts of criminals in Tokyo. I saved the kingdom long haunted by a great calamity. I learned the secrets of an empire long since dead. I hunted strangers in search of a delicious chicken dinner. We committed a lot of crimes in video games. But in the spirit of the season, we've brought together fellow players, writers, artists, and game makers to reflect on 2017. Uh, We'll be looking at the year's most memorable games and events. And before we get started, this is Armin from the Future dipping right into this episode just to say that we definitely have a live discussion coming right up. Before we get to that, I want to introduce our panelists for the Skype discussion that we had just before uh, the live discussion started. We'll be back with the actual crew in a moment, but till then, hope you enjoy. Hi, Janine. Hi, David. You both are freelance writers working in the world of video games. Um, for those who don't know you, um, starting with David Walensky, tell us a bit about what you do. Yeah, sure. So thanks for having me back on your show again. Uh, I guess, you know, sort of the main thrust of uh, what I do in around games is an interview series that I started in uh, late 2014 called Don't Die. Uh, it's basically uh, intending to paint games onto a broader cultural canvas. So the last few years, my conversations have been exploring sort of how gaming is part of a wider network of industries and subcultures that are all struggling to figure themselves out. So I'm Janine Hawkins. I'm at Bleating Heart on Twitter. Thanks for having me on the show, by the way. Uh, It's my first time and I'm pretty excited. Um, I sort of am a bit of a jack-of-all-trades freelance game writer. I do uh, reviews, um, usually with Polygon, though I've done some with GameSpot in the past. Um, I do sort of some news writing, some opinion writing, um... A lot of a lot of like gap filling on various sites, mostly Waypoint um, at this point. And I'm also on an actual play podcast called Friends at the Table, which you can find at friendsthetable.net. Friends at the Table, which is a fantastic actual play podcast, probably one of the, the better ones out there. So just to start off pretty broad, in a year as crazy as this, where it felt like the moment you look on the internet, a thousand things had happened, um, what role did games play in each of your life uh, lives? And I'm going to throw it to, to Janine to start. I think it was... Games are always, always offer kind of an escape, and that's one of the reasons I got into them when I was little and, and has been true for as long as I've played them. But I think... Every year that has gotten more and more true. Um, And this year in particular, games have been a place to turn when I don't want to look at Twitter anymore or when I don't want to look at the news anymore or when things just feel a little bit too heavy. Um, And it used to be that games were specifically more of a a personal escape. Like I I would have personal stress to escape from. This year it's felt a lot broader. (sighs) It's weird because I'm one of those people who doesn't like reducing games to just an escape. I don't like looking at them like that. But it's been very unavoidable this year. Uh, I mean, I can relate. And I don't know that it's a bummer, per se. Like, I feel like I've put a lot of effort this year into reconnecting with how I used to experience games when I was younger, which is like being divorced from the types of narratives or sort of things that people... Like, I, like I think about it like I'm trying to just sort of... <laughs> reclaim sort of the neural pathways in my head where 
Like, you know, it used to be a few years ago, like if someone says Mass Effect, like you're supposed to say something about its ending. Um, so I actually feel relatively lucky in the sense that I've retreated from a lot of that this year and arguably over the last few years. Speaking of, of kind of games as as an escape, um, how do you feel that that games writing or r- rather writing about games has has kind of changed or matured in the last um, in, in 2017 to kind of fit with what feels like a, a darker tenor on, on the news more broadly? It's, I think, been a long time coming. Uh, I I sort of came up in games writing through the paste game circles, and that was kind of always what what was going on there, was there was always this sort of, okay, here's this fun thing, but here's what it means in a greater context, and here's, here's what political ramifications it has. Like, it feels like, as a lot of those writers have moved up the ranks, like Kotaku has hired a lot of people who came up through paste in particular, um, those conversations have become a lot more mainstream in addition to it being definitely the time for that to be happening. Like this is the year when those should be mainstream, when that stuff should stop being on the periphery from people who are, who are ac- interested in games academically to people who are interested in in them broadly. I don't know. I mean, we talk about this sort of thing a lot. Like, is this stuff mainstream? Is it is it reaching through in certain ways? And I don't get the sense that it's necessarily spread wider than it has. I do know that uh, for sure this year and in recent years, um, if this is a type of writing you want to do, there are certainly tons of opportunities to do that. A few years ago, it was very, very few and far between. Mm-hmm. Janine, you have... You've been wor- you work in kind of almost every major outlet out there. How do you feel that the economics of freelance or even full time writing about games has has started to change? <sighs> it's it's tricky. Um, there, it feels like there are more opportunities. This is this is probably just my point of view because I didn't have as many opportunities open to me at one point, and now I have more. So it's it's hard for me to like say for sure, but it does feel like there are more opportunities to get paying work, but at the same time, relying very much on the same things of like you need to know someone who who can put you in touch with the right person, or it's so it's still it feels like things have opened up, but are still in a lot of ways kind of closed. Um, I have an easier time making a living than I used to, but that doesn't mean it's easy full stop and also it doesn't help that like a lot of sites uh are switching more to freelance models like glixel had a full staff and i don't think they do anymore i think they have a couple people and the rest is is freelance and like that's not the only site going that way so it's tough because i think there are more freelance opportunities but there, it's much harder to get those opportunities to transition this into something full time and and like sustainable for an adult who wants to like, you know, make a living. Um, it's still tough. It's still not where I'd like to see that that scene be. I I've heard other people put it a lot more bluntly, which is just as a career path, it's just unavailable. You know, I mean, I've seen my career go from being full time in house at places to another person I, I spoke with, I mean, Gita Jackson, who you were just, I mean, we were just sort of, you, we've sort of mentioned her, but didn't mention her. I mean, we were, we were talking about like, 
uh, there's just there's no gigs anywhere, and uh, I think I think the trouble with games and the business of writing about them it comes with a lot of baggage, like right out of the gate. Like you need to know a lot, you need to have played a lot, and you need to have you know a certain level of familiarity that maybe you don't in other fields. Maybe that's maybe that's wrong, and I think it just I think it just in some ways becomes an exercise in diminishing returns where. It's a lot of work, period, to get in the door at a place, much less if they have a budget for freelance, if they're looking to add more freelancers. But this is just kind of what the internet has done to all publishing business models online. So, I mean, I've seen, I was part of the tail end of, like, writing for physical media. um, And as it's gone completely digital, perhaps rightly, you know, everyone wants to have their voice be heard. But we're finding the realities and the economics of that are well, okay, what else should I do to bring money coming in? Because, mm-hmm. um, uh, I, I mean, I can't, I can't speak for, uh, for anyone else, but I do know that, you know, if, if you're being asked to, for example, like review a role-playing game, like uh, that's a huge time investment in of itself on top of everything else. Uh, so it, it all really depends. I mean, I, I, I feel like I wish I could put some sort of optimistic bow on the end of it. But I don't really think this has been an optimistic year for many people, so yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to try to slap a bow on it. But it's 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 hard, and I think uh, there's the extra challenge of convincing people that or yourself that your work is worthwhile and valuable when you're not getting that feedback uh, from anywhere. <laughs> I think that one story that has definitely broken through from the gaming press to the uh, mainstream audiences more broadly is um, the issues around loot boxes. And for those who don't know, um, loot boxes are kind of randomized reward elements built into games, usually either to incentivize people to pay money or to spend more time. And without going too far into specific games and what's going on, I'm curious, um, how do you feel that this, this, what feels like a more prominent element has impacted the way you've talked about games this year? It's um, it's weird because it feels a lot like a conversation that, from a journalistic point of view, we've been having often. Like it's it's not new to say in a review that like nah, these microtransactions feel really manipulative, um, or like it, this this game feels feels engineered in a way that that wants me to spend money that you know money beyond what I've already spent or whatever. I I don't think I'm the only journalist who was surprised when things like really popped off and fall like when things really seriously exploded because it it felt on paper like stuff we'd been through before like we've seen angry reddit threads before we've seen um loot box loot box discussion before like jim sterling has been beating that drum for for years now i think the thing i'm i'm really interested in seeing is how much it actually sticks if it sticks if it feels like things were loud enough and startling enough maybe for the business people involved that something might change. But I wonder if the thing that's going to change is is like the actual matter, the actual loot boxes, the actual microtransactions, whatever, or just the messaging around them. That's a very good point because it, it feels like very, very arid ground that uh, we've been <laughs> over at some point. And so like when I see something like this pop up, I think people can hear that like, you know, oh, this is covering old ground. I mean, I wonder, I don't want to seem like I'm being dismissive of it because I do wonder if you don't like it, don't buy it. 
and if it proves to be a you know damaging business practice then they'll be forced to reconsider i mean in a way this is you know another rehash of something years and years ago when people used to say oh i'll just vote with my dollars and and the problem with that sort of approach to boycotting is it's not attached to any sort of message and uh, those dollars will just be replaced by someone else's dollars who's, who's happy to buy it. I was just going to say, I think it's also, it's very different um, what people, like my own personal, tra- my own personal, like not policy, but but my feelings on microtransactions change from game to game. And like there are some kinds of microtransactions where if they are present in a game that I enjoy, I look at them like a tip jar. Like I look at them as a, as a way to be like, yeah, you know what? You made a thing that I really liked, I'll give you some extra money because I can and, you know, everything's fine. Um, But that exact same kind of microtransaction in a game that I don't like, I will resent because it does feel like a hand hand being sort of outstretched waiting for more. Um, So it's, it's hard for me to even say that there is some sort of happy middle ground because like, I like loot boxes. I do. I I spent a lot of money on Overwatch loot boxes when I was playing that game. But at the same time, I recognize that there is something very exploitive there that should probably change. All that, the kind of doom and gloom we talked about for the last 20 minutes. Uh, I do want to get to the thing that uh, is, that tends to at least be enjoyable, if not um, directly definable as fun. Could each of you name a memorable game for you in uh, 2017 and it doesn't have to be a game that is your best it doesn't have to be a game that is um one that came out in 2017 it just needs to be one that you thought a lot about in this calendar year and i'm gonna start with david i i feel like this is gonna be a predictable choice and i'm surprised this is my choice but uh the the new zelda game legend of zelda game breath of the wild there's something about it that I found super duper refreshing. I mean, I'm surprised that uh, I have found myself coming back to an open world game for something close to 200 hours this year. But I mean, that number aside and the length of time invested, uh, it's just for me, it's been a long time since I've played a game where the world makes you feel small and you are outside all of the time and it's just a very relaxing, soothing world to exist in. And yeah, okay, technically it's sort of a mishmash of other things that have been done before, but I always feel like this is sort of what Nintendo excels at, which is just sort of uh, packaging everything up in a really nice, rewarding way. Um yeah, I don't know how to feel about the fact that I'm going to be getting a motorcycle soon in a Zelda game, but I'm going <laughs> to, you know what, I'm going to press forward um, because it's it's just it's just been a, a thoroughly uh, enjoyable ride so far. So that's uh, the one I'm going to get back to playing uh, tonight, in fact. Um, so that would be my pick. Janine, uh, what would your memorable game be? It has to be, for me, it has to be Yakuza 0, which was a game that I was assigned and like to review and, and an assignment that I accepted because I was like vaguely curious about the series. I'd never played one before. I knew the the premise of several of the games. Like I, it was a series I'd looked into, but never committed to. I went in expecting very much like, okay, this is going to be like a macho crime story, but it's a Japanese game. So maybe it'll be like a little less rote than, than what I would expect from like Grand Theft Auto or whatever. 
I knew it was wacky. I knew that. I knew that was going in there, too. I knew it was wacky and also crimey and also macho. I had those three things totally understood. I did not understand the, like, emotional depths of that series. I did not expect them. I didn't expect a series that was, like, very much about how a, you know, strong boy character could relate to other people and, and have like really intense feelings. I wasn't expecting a character that would cry multiple times out of that, like in the game from that series. Um, I wasn't expecting like a really robust cabaret club game where you like get to know a bunch of girls who have all these really good ambitions and like really great relationships with each other. And the two things about Yakuza 0 that like really stand out are like the spectacle of it, the like really good it's like a really well-directed movie in a lot of respects. And then the sort of the way that personal relationships are, are shown. Um, and it's done in a way that I feel like a lot of Western games dealing with similar topics really shy away from. It was very refreshing. It was very surprising. It was very refreshing for those reasons. All right. I want to thank you so much for both of your time. This has been super insightful, and I'm glad to hear about both um, Breath of the Wild and Yakuza 0. If uh, if people want to find uh, find more of your stuff, where's a good place to look? The best place is, is Twitter because I write for so many different outlets, so I tend to funnel things through there, and that's at Bleating Heart, like the sound a sheep makes. Uh, best place for me is to just check out nodontdie.com. Um, if you are so inclined, I am also on Twitter, which is just at my name, which uh, should, I think, be in this episode, but I, so I won't spell it here. Thanks again to Janine and David. Now to the rest of our show. So, Yifat, um, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, I'm Yifat. Uh, I teach game design and 3D modeling in York University. Uh, previously, I was in Sheridan and a few other places. Uh, I also make very weird games that no one plays, but uh, as I said before, academia loves. Uh, I ran a different game conference in uh, June this year. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much... Oh, I'm also co-director of them making games. Should be said. Um, hi, uh, I'm Taylor. I go by From Smiling on the Internet. Uh, I've made a bunch of small indie games here and there. Um, some, maybe some people have known or not. Uh, I made a game called Frail Shells. Uh, and I also work in a studio called Gloom Collective, and I co-own that with three others, and we're making a game called Braver Network. And I've had uh, games kind of like shown all over the world in a bunch of places and also on the internet sometimes. And that's really, that's me. All right, Gabe, tell us about what you do. Hi, I'm Gabe Zoltan-Johan. I am a coach for League of Legends. Uh, as this is released, I'm going to be coach of, or academy coach of FlyQuest, uh, which is an NALCS team owned by the Milwaukee Bucks. It's also a former uh, writer for the Score Esports alongside Dan, and I am an avid video game lover just generally, so... Perfect. It's not just esports. Thank you, Gabe, for getting my conflict of interest statement out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John, tell us a bit about you've been on the show before. Yeah, but... um, so I'm I'm Jonathan Orr. Uh, I'm kind of like a journeyman at CBC News in Toronto. Uh, I've written a lot about video games in the past. I'm currently working on uh, multiple projects on CBC Radio online side. This is sort of something that kind of hits on. We talked a little bit this at the end of last year, where we all said, "Oh man, 2016 was really rough, but 2017 is going to be great." And maybe that was a bad thing to say out loud. <laughs> and what I wanted to ask, sort of, to the to the to the floor. Well, well, no, it was You're more the like, one that caused this. <laughs> just don't crucify me. Was in a year that's been this crazy. Mm -hmm. What role have video games played in your lives? 
if if at all if they've been something for you and and just to give people a second to think for me games have partially been an escape but also partially been sort of a way to process events i played oh goodness um uh, tyranny this year which is a game about sort of a little bit about the banality of evil but also sort of about political evil and the decisions that are made and it didn't make me sympathetic towards uh governments that are that may or may not currently be in power but it, it certainly kind of put things in perspective for me i played a lot of uh breath of the wild which is a game that was i kind of initially saw an escape but became a a system for me by which sort of giving me a large open world to poke around and and be if not an important figure in a figure that solved problems for people which felt very therapeutic for me in a way but i don't know if anything else did something like that for for somebody here yeah well yeah i just wanted to say that you know i totally agree with you you know a lot of people think about games as escape as just a general kind of mantra but i think this year really showed that games can be more than just an escape and can really send a shivering message to other people the two games that stand out for me in particular are this is the police and Horizon Zero Dawn, right? One with a very heavy kind of environmental outlook on thing, environmentalist outlook on things, and one that's you know directly addressing police behavior and and issues revolving around police violence, right? I think that uh, games have kind of stepped forward as a really relevant medium to express a political message more so than they have in previous years. Um, yeah, just to add to that, uh, just like in a critical sense. Um... I find that the game that came out this year were very... This was the first year I felt that games really were, like, less afraid about saying what they want to say. Mm-hmm. Where in the past, we were like, we're not political. This year, we're, they were, we're, we're political. Um, and for me, it was... I made a conscious choice to play games because I don't have a lot of time, right? Yeah. I made conscious choice to play, to play games that are short and that I will enjoy. Uh, so specifically, a lot of games with uh, ha- a strong narrative focus, um, and uh, I found that a large percentage of the games I played, even even big AAA games, had this strong political statement that I found. Finally, it was like, oh, finally, games are doing it. it was, <laughs> I was so happy, in a way. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting because I feel like I come at this from like a really, really different place. Like I mostly make games and mm-hmm. I don't play as many games as a lot of my like peers and coworkers in like the games industry. And I find that games for me have become really like more about like community and about like uh, kind of like family as well. Like, I mean, uh, co-owning a studio with like three other people and we're going to like the second year or plus of this is when we're finally starting to like bond in a way where mm-hmm. we're, we're like there's a bit of togetherness there to go through these like hard times. And I see the same thing with like the game making communities and industry. I see it on uh, Twitter. I see people like rallying and I see people like making sure everyone is doing okay and talking about how we can get through this and go about this and people like putting out solutions and like uh, it's creatives who all have a passion for like this one thing really, uh, you know, touching each other's hearts and going, I've, I've gone through like some of these hard things too. And like we're a community, let's, try and pull through together mm-hmm. having a games as a support system i think is something that is yeah. really especially now that we have i mean toronto's kind of had, had this really strong indie scene but but mm-hmm. we've especially with the way twitter has been sort of try i think an approach to reclaiming twitter to be mm-hmm. something a little bit more positive i, I definitely have seen that kind of support mm-hmm. system show up mm-hmm. yeah, yeah it's it's tough because twitter can sometimes be like a <laughs> messy hole of like off like you know it can be in, in a lot of ways uh 
if you're if you're sensitive to that stuff, it can make you sad or feel awful because you see a lot of bad things happening all the time. But like there are good messages through there, and you get friends who are like, "Hey, I haven't seen you in a while." Like I'm gonna give you a poke and make sure you're doing okay and things like that. Like there's friendships through that that are really important to me. Mm-hmm. That's a good tagline. Twitter, a messy hole. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's their new logo, actually. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a scribble. Yeah, yeah. Like, my my favorite game this year was like every time something awful happened on Twitter, I would go and open the news from Israel and I said, "Oh, we can get worse." <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm coming from a little bit different, but like working in the news, like mm-hmm. it's just been a, an amazing torrent of stuff coming out every day. And for me, I guess games kind of hold a pretty traditional. Um, space of escapism like I've spent you know dozens and dozens of hours kind of mindlessly playing games like Destiny or Diablo or you know going back into comfort zones um, like you know especially the 16-bit Super Nintendo games I managed to grab a Super Nintendo classic Mm -hmm. Um, but you know when I was looking at my list of like you know what are the games that really hit me the most they're the games that I didn't necessarily spend as much time in uh, but the ones that, you know, as I've said before, you know, tackle really interesting subject matters and themes mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, just interesting discussions uh, like, you know, uh, especially made here in, in Toronto, like uh, Lady Kill and Her Bind, mm-hmm. um, A Mortician's Tale, mm-hmm. um, uh, Tacoma as well. Those ones really kind of stick out to me, even though I might not necessarily have, you know, dumped all my hours in throughout the entire year. But they are really ones like absolutely mm-hmm. worth talking about. So this is a fairly broad question. and It's, it's more focused towards... Um, uh, I guess you thought and Taylor here, but how, what do you feel are the new challenges facing uh, game makers in 2017? Um, it feels like the, the the monetary environment is changing and the, the situation in Toronto is becoming a little different. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how have you been feeling this year? Um, I, I think that it's kind of funny to say because it's like oh, the monet- like the the way that the market is and the way that like people can make money off of games is changing, but that really isn't like a new thing to me. It's like it, it's felt turbulent and awful and inconsistent for as long as I've kind of been in games, and, and that it's not as long as some people where like I, I definitely hear of the golden age and things like that. But uh, I think that it's there are like some new things, but it being hard to make money is maybe not one of them. <laughs> um, I have to I have to give this a little bit more thought though, as far as like what is new. Yeah, I mean we're we've been in the indie apocalypse for mm-hmm. you know, ten years. <laughs> <laughs> is it still an apocalypse? Uh, I, I don't know. I'm I making mean, a home of it. I think at this point, if you it's make games, you really you really just want to make games. Mm-hmm. Um, I and uh, it happens a lot because I I teach, so I have students. Um, and one of the first things I say to them. You know, my job, I jokingly said once that my job is to crush their dreams. Uh, I sound really horrible. I'm not. I'm a good. Every, every teacher I know has said that. Yeah. Because like, they. You would be a great journalism teacher. Uh, <laughs> it just, if you want to make games, games don't have money. Mm-hmm. Not to creators. Uh, you know, occasionally there's, yeah. you know, the huge success, the cuphead. But, you know, it does happen once in a while. Mm-hmm. And. Out of like every person that uh, mortgage their house but then become a huge success, yeah. there is yeah. fifty other people who lose their house, right? It's, it's interesting because there, I feel like there's a lot of new things that are actually more helpful to developers than there are like challenges. I mean, I think that the situation gets a little bit worse every year just because there's like way more people trying to make games and trying to be successful in the industry. Like way more students coming out of schools. There's more programs and there's just more people. It's easier to get lost uh, and there's. I don't know if the amount of money is, like, increasing, so it's getting spread around a little bit more thin, which is fine. Uh, But I do find that nowadays there are more actually, like, 
weird small community run type things that have started to take place and take off and get more grasped just because there's a higher number of people involved. There's a higher number of students everywhere. There's a higher number of like creatives and people making games. So things like the Ontario government has more money to help us out. And uh, things like itch.io are like getting bigger and bigger every year. And uh, even like the hand-eye society seems to like be doing like all of these spaces. um, Like I also want to give a shout out to like James making games and gamma space as well. Like, all of these spaces, some of them have been around for a while, some of them haven't, um, are, they seem to be doing well and they are getting their legs or some have their legs and are starting to like run now on supporting the developer communities and making spaces that they have experience making policies and stuff now. They have experience organizing events and things like that. And I think that those are all actually really good things coming, coming out of 2017, going towards 2018. Um, I was wondering actually, uh, if mm-hmm. as a, you know, teaching game design and things of that sort. Uh, since we're talking so much about the business of games and how that changes, um, do are these game development programs, do they include any element of like the business of games or are you teaching strictly um, development and how to build them? Like, are we also, is there also room for uh, courses or programs that teach how to like make, turn into a business? So it really depends on the school. Um, so the program in York is not a game program. Mm. Uh, it's an art and technology, similar to okay. OCAD or mm-hmm. Ryerson, uh, mm-hmm. though I don't think the Ryerson uh, digital media has games yet. Uh, but um, mm-hmm. I can say, for example, Sheridan program that is game focused only has a business class. Uh, mm-hmm. And as far as I know, they actually have like, they literally write an OMDC application. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, okay. I don't know in terms of like York if they have a specific business class. They probably have a business class, but they don't have a business, a game business class. Mm-hmm. They just have a business class. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming from as, as players, John and Gabe, the it feels like these days the places like Steam, places like mm-hmm. Humble, they're becoming these um, increasingly cluttered places to find games, but they're also increasingly important. Um, how do you feel that that these these storefronts have affected your ability to find games that you really enjoy, and what are you relying on to 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 find things that you think you will like? Yeah, I mean it's not just those two. You yeah. see everyone kind of jumping into this, like the way Blizzard's uh, BattleNet client works now, the way that Twitch, the streaming site, even starts to you know pedal games to people. Essentially, um, there's a lot of ways in which. Uh, there's just too many shops kind of opening opening up on the internet, and that's pretty interesting from that perspective. I would say early access, kind of bridging the previous question with this question, uh, is going to be a bit of an issue and challenge moving forward, just in terms of how developers handle early access and what early access starts to mean to people as we move forward into the next year. Uh, and I think Steam uh, is taking steps or has been trying to take steps to kind of curb the way early access has been exploited by certain individuals one way or another. Um, yeah, and that's kind of, that has made it difficult to kind of find what you're looking for. At that point, it's mostly word of mouth that you kind of have to rely on just because scrolling through such a vast library in Steam alone is just, you know, it's a full-time job in and of itself. So, Like, it seems like there was a point where Valve was like, yeah, curators, like this is the new solution. And before yeah. that was like Greenlight and... 
and now I'm not really like I don't think anyone's yeah, really I sure mean, about what they're yeah. doing. And it's now you basically pay a hundred dollars and you can put your game. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. but I don't mean just for submitting. I just mean yeah. like how, how people how right? people get the games is like it's just like this endless scroll of like things that Steam's algorithms do, I guess. Yeah. But I don't really like it's I complicated. Mean, you see it right now, right? Because like I. Yeah. I people like I've only seen this because of Twitter, but like Gorogoa is a really cool game yeah. that just came out and is like not on any game of the year list. There are no reviews because everybody's on vacation. Yeah. Like the only way I'm seeing this game is word of mouth, and it would have gone like I, I'm loving it, but like I would have completely missed it, yeah, and absolutely. it would have been a shame. So yeah. there's a phenomenal feature about that game specifically on Kotaku that came out just this week. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, otherwise I would never have heard about it. Like it's mm-hmm. like a looking. It reminds me of like in the old like, games magazines like in the '90s. There'd be all these big pages of like new releases mm-hmm. and stuff coming out. There'd be like one uh, one pick and like two sentences about it, and it's like it doesn't go totally in depth, but it kind of gives you like this um, umbrella like look at everything, like mm-hmm. not zombie umbrella, but just like a look overall. That's where, another thing of the debel- development that is happening with games, where because there's so many games and you can pick and choose what you want. Um, a you a big game release doesn't mean a success. Like sure, yeah. AAA release is no longer a success. It's um, it, it's also a matter of the AAA games having such higher expectations by mm-hmm. um, investors, shareholders, just yeah. all the numbers. Um, you know, like for a, a smaller indie game, oh, like yeah. a couple thousand sales is probably a good start. Whereas like a AAA mm. game by yeah. I don't know, I have no idea. I, that's, well, that's, a, that's another big thing number. too. Like, we don't I, know. I will um, say that a big thing too is that, and, and obviously part of it is that the business side of stuff should remain like a developer doesn't, a developer, especially an indie developer, doesn't really want to put that stuff out there. But like, yeah. there is, I think, and and it is increasing a a not a lack of communication, but there are things that the the play, that players don't know that yeah. developers do, and that and that sometimes that's a good thing. But I think that a lot of, uh, you know. More, crappier people on the internet have yeah. kind of taken that stuff and turned it into some sort of bizarre rallying cry that has I, made things very divisive. I really think that's a big thing, especially around Kickstarter. Yeah. And I mean, kind of like, like I mean, Patreon sets and stuff, but like Patreon as well, like any place where like the developers like, I kind of need this much money to like make games and then you get a lot of people on the internet, probably mostly young people who like live at home or that, you know, are like fairly privileged in a bunch of ways. Uh, basically... And it also stems from, like, the culture from the, the time that we don't, like, mm-hmm. try not to, uh, you know, the, yeah. the bad time. The bad time. The bad time. There's a lot of people from those spaces that I think they're kind of taking this ethical rally against, like, game makers. And they also don't know how much work or how much money, like, making games is. And e- even if they're people that have a passion for making games, they are not, they don't have the perspective on it. And so, like, it's t- someone will do a Kickstarter for, like, $100,000 for, like, a an indie team mm-hmm. and they'll be like oh they made like hundred thousand dollars it's like success meanwhile that like pays the team because it's like five people for like mm-hmm. less less than like half a year or something yeah. or like you know and never mind all the like legal fees and accounting and the kickstarter cut and all like all these things and so a lot of players really don't know the like kind of work and resources that just go into making a game like you could you can say oh like we'll just work on it and don't get paid or all these things but that's not how yeah. you you can't spend time doing that when you have Rent and like food to buy. People to eat, right? You gotta live. Exactly. And I think in a way, uh, especially in Toronto, we're very privileged that way because we have government Mm -hmm. grants. Yeah. Everywhere else they don't, Mm -hmm. Uh, or they have very little. uh, You know, again, I'm an immigrant, so I can tell you, like, in Israel, you don't get Mm -hmm. government grant for making games. You don't get money to make games in general. 
I would I would love to see what kind of games come out of that scene if that were the case. Though. I I I think <laughs> I, the game industry in Israel, as far as I know, is mostly casinos at this point, and and that's not the only place, right? That's yeah. a very common yeah. thing. Um, and so we're very privileged where I don't have to go to Kickstarter. Mm. I, I think part of it is that Kickstarter. Um, sorry to interrupt. It's like that whole when Kickstarter started, there's still the the misconceptions of what Kickstarter is or was I've, mm-hmm. like the ripples are still kind of being felt it's somewhere between customer and investor but kind of neither of those yeah. and there are still a lot of uh, communities or people who, who still haven't figured out what exactly that means you know yeah. if you know if, if you really want to become an investor then uh, you, you, you might have moved on to like I guess fig or those other ones where you yeah. actually have a stake yep. um, but if not you know, what does that and mean? running a Kickstarter is a lot of work. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's its own job. In a yeah, lot of it's a lot of running a Patreon. It's a lot of work. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. A lot um, of work that... I will never have time to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There was there was a time like we we about three or four years ago, like or mm-hmm. more than that, whenever the this podcast started, we've been doing it for too long. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked a lot about sort of the disappearance, like kind of when we left around two thousand and mm-hmm. between two thousand seven and like two thousand nine, we lost this sort of like middle class of video game mm-hmm. that was back when there wasn't like the giant. There were a couple like bigger indie successes, but no giant indie successes, mm-hmm. and there were no like mega indie studios. Meanwhile, we had you know uh, for, again like we had a triple A game coming out, but we had something in the middle, and that disappeared. And now, essentially, what had happened, I think, is that these larger independent developers have kind of come in to fill that Mm -hmm. vacuum because that is a thing that people wanted. Mm -hmm. And people are just sort of like saying, well, that's still an indie game. It's like, I don't I don't know. Not in the same sense. And and, and to add to that, you have like, you know, and legitimate like stuff like casino games and porno games. They're the own like and we have to talk about them because they're a huge. Yeah. Dating sim are huge. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't seem make a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, Candy Crush games. And yeah. Candy yeah. Crush Mobile, games. just generally. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and they're their own mm-hmm. spectrum. And mm-hmm. you can't, like, and again, going back to where I talk with the students, like, you know, when they go, a lot of them will want to go to AAA. At the end of the day, most of them, when graduating, will find themselves in indie. Uh, mm-hmm. But will find themselves in casino indie or, yep. or uh, porno indie. Like, they have money, right? Because... Mm-hmm. Uh, or dating sim, uh, and maybe they'll find themselves eventually doing more interesting stuff. And I'm quoting here, <laughs> uh, but like, yeah, that's the reality. So we cannot longer just say, "Oh, there's indie, mm-hmm. and indie can't make money," because that's false. Because mm-hmm. indie can make money, and there's AAA, and AAA makes a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also worth knowing that AAA is just at such a in the last 10 years or so, it's blown up to a giant, like the budgets mm-hmm. of AAA games yeah. now are just so astro- yeah. like astronomically yeah. higher and bigger they're, they're, they're cartoons, than what, right? like, oh, yeah. than what likes, like a AAA game in the PlayStation 1 era was like maybe made by 10 or, can, more or less it was made by 10 or 20 people. Like mm-hmm. Castlevania Symphony of the Night, I believe its main team was still <coughs> around 10 people. Uh, no, compare that to, yeah, it's yeah. Um, the definitions of whatever all, yeah. all of this is kind of are indistinguishable from 20 years. Oh, I want to poke in here really fast yeah. and I just want to like, I feel like in these kind of conversations, a lot of times of it's easy to be like, everybody wants to be indie. That's the dream. But like, I definitely think that there's a lot of good and, and you know, people are happy working in like AAA or, or in casino games or in like porno games or dating. Like if people are happy working in these spaces that I think that that's a really good thing if it's like healthy for their lives. And I don't think that like everyone needs to yeah. risk themselves being indie to chase after something that I don't, I don't even know if that's what they want like it's and, it's and, hard and to that's say legitimate like yeah. having a job that is a full-time mm-hmm. job a nine-to-five job that pays your bills mm-hmm. and gets you like 
health insurance and pension plan、mm-hmm. is not a bad thing. It's awesome、yeah. and respectable. It's、yeah. also worth noting that a lot of the new,、um, the recent indie successes like、mm-hmm. uh, Firewatch, or like, even in Canada, The Long Dark,、uh, mm-hmm. they were formed by lots of people who used to work in AAA.、Mm-hmm. So they know their way around the business more、mm-hmm. than someone who might just be striking it out on their own have been. Uh, one or two of them might be, you know, like you know. Quite frankly, they're a little bit comfortable. Like they're in a good place to start a studio、mm-hmm. by themselves. Not everyone at,、yeah. straight outside of a development like college university program has that kind、mm-hmm. of leeway. They have the savings and all of those. Yeah, things yeah. and just、it. like the business experience,、yeah. you know. Absolutely,、uh, Gabriel. I I think you're in a pretty unique position compared to everyone else in the sense that you are seeing a new front of of kind of video games.、Mm-hmm. Um, working as a coach,、um, that's a job that didn't really exist. At least not in the same way ten years ago. No, not at all.、Um, what led you to become a coach for League of Legends? Sure. So,、uh, background, academic background. So I was a、uh, graduate of political science, and I did a lot of data analysis work there using stuff like SPSS or Excel, etc.、Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that for kind of looking at East Asian politics more generally, but.、Mm-hmm. There was kind of a call out from the University of Toronto League of Legends team at the time, many moons ago,、uh, asking for help on the analysis front, and I thought that I could polish and kind of build up my skills by transferring those skills to that game.、Um, eventually, I was working with them, and one of our players went professional. So the coach at the time had to become a player, and I had to become the coach because I was the only other staff member. So I was kind of thrust into a position that I wasn't, I didn't apply for. Um, luckily, I had experience coaching in the past as well.、Um, you know, coaching just generally in terms of being a motivator and in terms of being the kind of person that people can look up to as a role model for certain behaviors.、Um, that's pretty transferable. So, what is the? You mentioned your team in your introduction, but just so that we have it here, what was? Who are you working for right now? So right now I'm working for FlyQuest.、Uh, it is the NALCS North American League of Legends uh, series uh, team owned by the owner of the Milwaukee Bucks, Wesley Edens. So clearly, all mainstream sports is trying to get a piece of the pie, and I think yes, and they're very much in there. Yeah, and I think like with Overwatch, with a lot of these other games. You're you're starting to see more sport sports become a bigger part of the、mm-hmm. jet more broadly, and I feel like a lot of people look at the big numbers and that's the like and the fact that sports are getting involved. But the thing that like I I think about is that like players in the NFL, for instance,、mm-hmm. aren't treated especially well.、Um, I would think. How is this influx of money or this 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 generally the growing of the the, the space faring for the players? And as a coach, how what is what does it look like from from your angle? So it's totally esports deten- dependent first and foremost, right? Right.、Um, but I will say that regulation is only slowly catching up to the actual amount of investment in it. Right.、Uh, so for example, a players association for League of Legends in North America only. Was just formed like a couple months ago.、Uh, so, in terms of that type this is, of this is season seven, yes, season eight of season the professional eight, league, season, season eight. eight so, league. eight years in, it's kind of just starting to happen. For coaches, for example,、mm-hmm. no movement on that front whatsoever. So, not even the full amount of staff get that kind of ability for any sort of collective action at the moment, at least.、Mm-hmm. Um, in other games, it's almost completely absent, and it's actually. Uh, interesting to see that organizations have taken the first step to kind of 
have collective actions on uh, collective action together. So uh, esports organizations who employ the players are starting to kind of, I guess, unionize themselves and kind of drive negotiations, but in the interest of obviously the organization and maybe not so much the interest of the staff under that organization. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's pretty it's pretty disparate and pretty different depending on the game. I don't know where it's going to head mm-hmm. just because we've only seen kind of the first player-specific association kind of swell up. Um Maybe we'll see more as 2018 kind of rolls on, but uh, yeah, nothing nothing beyond that at the moment. Yeah. Uh, just to add, if I can, I think mm-hmm. the question of unionization in general in video games is going to be a big thing in 2018. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm not as that's, familiar. That's not a thing in like, it not really in like development, development either, and yeah. even like teaching has kind of been going through I mean, I'm too, right? Un- well, I'm unionized. Okay. Uh, yeah. One of the things York has is unionization, Ryerson yep. as well, uh, yep. all the university. Absolutely. But that's what happened with the colleges. Yeah, the colleges, yeah. they all went on strike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as far as games go, like just look at the voice actor strike and like yeah. what, yeah. Just, yeah. what that culture clashes I, between yeah. like performances and yeah. uh, like technology and arts and entertainment. Like what, what like, where, yeah, where do I games think, fit I there? think we're probably going to see more and more unionization talk in 2008. Talk about it, right. Who yeah. knows yeah. what happens for, next. For though. esports in particular, that's a great parallel to the industry itself because they are performers at the mm-hmm. end of the day. They're mm-hmm. entertainers in the same way that the, the voice actors are. So we'll see if that actually... And in that's and as far as esports go, I always found this fascinating in that like, if you're playing for the NHL or the NBA, like you're playing a sport, but like the league doesn't technically own the sport. When when you're when you're a it's player for a league, of, yeah. When you're yeah. when you're working, you're you're in some ways still working as marketing for a retail product. Yes, and that's well, free uh, to play, nonetheless. Sure, but, but yeah, yeah, still, a, a, still retail. A, yeah. It's still it's still a thing with a skew. And I was like, I find that yeah. that's a fascinating dynamic that yes. I feel like we don't entirely know all the implications. One of, of the yet. one of the interesting things uh, to kind of add on to that is the players' association was developed by the publisher yeah. as mm. well. So not even by the players and, themselves yeah. organizing. And, and but then who sets that, the rules uh, there, right? Exactly. It, it is kind of against their own interests in the first place to even I mean, start with that, right? Yeah. So as a, you know, if we're talking like yeah. super Though it will, It would be if it worked, and, and exactly. both Gabe and I did the research on this. If it actually happened and became a proper players union, the, the, the association as it is right now does not have collective bargaining written mm. into them, but they could theoretically have it if they move towards that. And but they have said they're open to they it. They have said they're open to it, mm-hmm. um, but both game and I have, have a point is it would be the first time a like successful professional sports league whether that's sports or esports like a professional yeah. league would have a players association kickstarted by the league yeah. itself yeah. And, and do you think like Riot overall seems to be a company that like doesn't they're fairly not evil from how they approach them. <laughs> like, like I mean like like they originally the design of their game um, the way that they make money from it is more ethical than not it's not loot box based that's mm-hmm. the big thing happening right? it's yeah. not it's like you bu- you buy things and you know the cost of it and when you buy you it know you know what you're, you're gonna get and it's not something that you pay to like win or things like that or you're they're not like squeezing you out of stuff that you can't get you know it's very like you play the game and you see some stuff and sure that like champion you know there's a whole politics thing and like or ethical thing and like grinding and stuff like that sure but like buying skins is the way that they make money is actually a lot better than a lot of like multiplayer online games but at the same time like any other uh, company in the games industry mm-hmm. uh, there's no like obligated transparency like mm-hmm. in this in the way that like budgets and contracts and development are in the film industry mm-hmm. so um, some companies are very are much better than others at you know 
talking about what they want to do with their plans, mm-hmm. uh, you know, their, the, you know, the things that are running inside how the gears run. But at the same time, all of those are still disclosed at the discretion of the company, right? Mm-hmm. So in the Absolutely. end, it, it's all a matter. It, it can all come down to, in one way or another, a sense of PR. I think that there's a really, like, there's kind of like a theme here along all of the stuff that I have been recognizing for a little bit now is in 2017 and a little bit before, but specifically it's been very loud in the past, like, few months. And I think it's just everyone being like, everybody deserves to have rent and have yeah. food and have, <laughs> like, have these basic things that are not basic yet. Like, yeah. they aren't really, not everyone has them and you have to fight for them. And everyone is slowly being like, no, 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 ev- everyone should have these things. And that is kind of, I think it's been amplified due yeah. to the kind of just bad stuff that's been happening in like states and the politics, the, like the things that have been hard. And I, and I want to say like not moving forward in a lot of ways. That's like a political thing. No, but I, no certainly not. But there's a yeah. there's crossover. There have been more stories in the last few years, especially in the states of how mm-hmm. like changes in like healthcare laws affect mm-hmm. um, how you know studios work, how developers can earn money and how, you know, what what their safety net is mm-hmm. and how that affects the games that are out there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's very exciting that 2018 may be the year socialism takes hold. I mean, but that's the thing where yeah. the situation is so low that people yeah. are starting to like, oh, socialism, that's not such a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's, really cool. it's, it's a cool thing. Yeah. I mean, it's complicated. Yeah. yeah. But, there, sure. but it's it's a movement in a good direction. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the ideal behind this are, are one of yeah. accessibility for everybody yeah. and, and the necessities you need to, to live and be a happy person. Be okay. Be, just be yeah. okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. 2018, be okay. Be okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that's important. Yeah. I think, you know, this year, a lot of people felt like forever. <laughs> yes. Is it over yet? Yeah. <laughs> it's not over yet because we still have to talk about our favorite nice. or most memorable games. That was right. the closest I had into a moment for transition here. We went really deep I'm proud of you. I, that was a gimme. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh. <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna start with if you thought what was what is your most memorable game of 2017? Can I not choose a game? You uh, what, what what would be your alternative? It could be an interactive experience. I'm I'm going to choose the Nintendo Switch. Okay, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Most Heck memorable yeah. Nice. Oh my god, that launched this year. Yeah, <laughs> and I I think that was the biggest thing that happened this year in terms yeah. of gaming. I was really yeah. worried you were gonna say Tinder. Like, <laughs> second, I was like, oh no. Why why the why was the switch the biggest thing for you this year? I think <laughs> having the ability to like having this console that is just small, but it's small, but it's big enough to put in your hand. You can connect it to everything. Uh, Nintendo support for indies. Publishing on the Switch. This for me, it was the the bigger thing in gaming this year. Yeah. All right, Taylor, what have you been thinking about? Well, I want I do want to give a shout out to the Switch because I'm playing a lot of Splatoon, and that that's my like honorable oh, mention. Splatoon two because this the number one was so good, just uh, everything. Um, the game I'm going to pick, and this was a hard one because I've only played like six games this year, <laughs> um, is actually a game I played at work in our like small studio, the four of us. We played a game called Follow. And it's a game um, made by the person who made Microscope. So follows this really, really interesting, very dense, like very small, short um, like role-playing like experience uh, where we all like took a bunch of cards and took turns. Like we come up with this world, we each had characters and we played like sub-characters in each other's like plot lines. And uh, the way it works is like 
I think you go to like scenes where you end up role playing with each other, but you get to pull in certain people and certain characters. So you'd be like, well, I'm going to pull in like my sidekick that the person across from me is playing and also like the main character that the person to my like right is playing. And we're going to have a conversation in this scenario. And it was just a really, really memorable organic experience. And I don't know if, if anyone on here or anyone in this room has heard of Microscope, which is an amazing world building like RPG experience. And, I, and it's super fun, regardless if you're making like a game from it. But we use that to build one of the worlds for our game. And it was just so organic and so top notch. All right, Gabe, what is your most memorable interactive experience? Sure. OK, well, I was told to keep it to one during the pre-show, uh, but I do want to give a shout out to Death Stranding. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 I interacted with, with the that trailer. Right? Yeah. I I interacted emotionally and spiritually with it. Uh, I gave it a good thumbs the baby. up. <laughs> I'm gonna stick to like a, a game here too. I'm gonna talk about what remains of Edith Finch. Uh, that game was the most memorable experience to me. Uh, it's kind of a personal reason, but uh, I am first generation Canadian. My parents are not from here. And that game is a game strewn about family, right? It's about kind of generational uh, generational approaches to storytelling and also generational approaches to how you deal with family and what you do with family and and what you do without family, just things like that. Uh, is And just death generally. It kind of is also part of, like, my favorite album this year was about... It was Mount Erie's album, which is also, like, about death, so... You know, 2017, very depressing, obviously. <laughs> but uh, that game really resonated with me as someone who doesn't have family here and who kind of has to be burdened with that and live with that and kind of see that from an interactive perspective and kind of see the different scenarios in different ways and different kind of creative gameplay exercises that were in the game to kind of express that was really immensely interesting for me. I would say that was like the singular most memorable experience for me. And John, what have you been thinking uh, about? Okay, so honorable mention for, for me is like the best game that I never played and have no intention of playing. Mm. Uh, okay. That would be Player Unknown's Battlegrounds um, because I have watched hours and <laughs> hours and hours of of matches and less plays and chats and, and streams of that game. Man. It is such a bizarre, it's, it's the, fascinating thing. It's like the academic, like every academic alive is obsessed with EVE Online, but none of us will ever want to play. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, For good nope. reason. <laughs> For me, like my best or most memorable experience was uh, playing the raid in Destiny 2 uh, over oh, the wow. course of about like, I want to say 18 hours in a week um, with some <laughs> with some friends of mine. And it was... It was like joy and torture and anguish and like going through this one stupid room for like seven and a half hours. And then when we finally beat it, it's like the most amazing emotional release ever. Um, it's 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 kind of a mess. Like design wise, it is it is it is a bloody nightmare. Um, but it's like there was no there was no greater reminder that games can bring people together and is like this beautiful social um, experience if you know, like you know, if, if you if you find the right people, find the right friends, and like figure out how to work together, like you feel like you feel like the Power Rangers after they just beat a monster. It's, it's <laughs> absolutely fantastic. All right, Dan. Oh, okay. I have to do this. I, I know we're gonna have a proper. Yeah. So uh, you don't need to go too far. I'll into go too it. far, but I will say the my most memorable game experience of this year was uh, completing the Terry Town side quest in Zelda oh, Breath of the Wild. Yeah. 
which oh man, I haven't played that yet. Oh, uh, okay. Tell me what I don't want to spoil. I'm not going to spoil too much then. But Thank it you. is it is a a side quest that is about community building mm-hmm. and about introducing people to each other mm-hmm. and, that build off of each other's skills, and it ends in this really kind of perfect moment that encapsulates what you did to build this place. You you build a town, essentially, and you do it through the people you know and finding people like them who would like them, and, and you create a community for those people and yourself. Um, and it was, a, it was something that I feel like I really needed in uh, early 2017 when I beat that, and it's something that I still think about a lot. Um, the the way that quest is done is, is really beautiful and even just the way the music is designed every time you bring a new person to that town it adds another instrument uh and at the end you get this beautiful what i think is honestly the most beautiful song in the game um yeah i don't know it it it, it struck a real chord with me and in a year that i kind of needed community stuff it it let me it it it, it essentially said like hey you you can build something here can i just jump off that yeah. and not like what sure. dan, dan said something that just like rung through me is that 2017 you know it was a great year for games but games music and music in games was yeah. absolutely amazing mm-hmm. yeah. like you cannot even just like sound design just yeah. generally just to was, add my, my my other choice for best game was near automata yes yeah. the soundtrack is fantastic yes yeah, so Someday. that's <laughs> my mem- most memorable game of 2017 <laughs> That game is incredible. I'm still like in the middle. But yeah, I haven't played it, and I will some year, I, I, some I am, decade. Oh, I am about four hours in, and maybe I will beat it in three years. Yes, <laughs> it is um, a really interesting approach to telling um, a non-linear story. Mm-hmm. It is kind, and it's above all, without spoiling it too much. It has a beautiful soundtrack that only gets better the further you get into the game, and. The, the characters manage to build on each other that I don't think you really see that often in um, in big budget games these days. So I'm just happy that Nier Automata exists in some form, mm-hmm. or Nier Automata, whatever side of this war that you're on. <laughs> um, it's been um, a long chat. Yes. Uh, and a long year. Yeah, and, and yes. a very long year. <laughs> a, lo- a lot of long things. This is a long, time. long, uh, long. But before we yeah, say goodbye, uh, we're just going to go <laughs> around you, the room again. And would you can let everybody know where to find you. I'm going to start with uh, Ifat again. Uh, I'm really easy to find because I'm the only person alive with my name. So if you Google Ifat Shaik, you'll find me. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my username is Ifat Shaik. Yeah, yep. I'm pretty easy to find too because nobody has my last name. Um, but my like, so if you just Google Taylor Beiwu or From Smiling, you'll probably find like my Twitter or my website. Uh, and I'd also say like go to our studio's website, uh, GlumCollective.com or Bravery.network, and you'll see some of our stuff that we make a little. Yeah. yeah, most everyone affiliated with League of Legends must have LOL in their Twitter name. So <laughs> mine true. is uh, Invert, my game name Invert. Uh, underscore LOL and you can find me on Twitter that's you know I check it all the time it's the most reasonable way to reach me or reach out in any way shape or form yeah I'm just on Twitter I'm uh, John underscore or just that's J-O-N underscore O-R-E um, you might occasionally see my bylines on cbcnews.ca and that's that's about it um, and in case I didn't mention this earlier I do in fact work with John sometimes so yeah um, is that is that something we're gonna, sure. yeah, yeah it's some, somewhere someone's gonna get angry at us uh, 27 <laughs> nepotism yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> This has been a fantastic uh, review of the year, I feel like. Um, and with that, I just want to say, yeah, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. Totally. Yeah. Thank you. Cheers. 
From CGRU in Toronto, this has been Built to Play. I'm Armin Bali, And I'm Daniel Rosen. Built to Play was made with the help of... Fajik. Taylor Bewu. Gabriel Zoltan-Johan. Jonathan Orr. You can follow us on Twitter at Built to Play or visit our website, builttoplay.ca. You can find us on Facebook, but hey, if you really like the show, be sure to tell a friend or leave us a review on iTunes. That can really help us out. Or you can send us an email at builtplayshow at gmail.com. It'd be great to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter personally at Flarkon. That's F-L-R-K-C-O-N. He's F-L-A-R-K-C-O-N. I, I do this at... literally every time. <laughs> I am at Daniel underscore Rosen. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, have a great year. <laughs>